I came into action research through experiential learning, which I'm trying to utilize in as a faculty member working with graduate students. I wanted the, my students to learn by doing. And so I started drifting into action research at first without having the proper name for it. Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. Dr. Lonnie Rowell is one of the founding figures of the action research movement. He's the president of the Social Publishers Foundation, retired associate professor at the University of San Diego School of Leadership and Education Sciences, and a founder of the Action Research Network of the Americas, or ARNA. Fun fact, Lonnie is also a former member of the 24th Street Feminist Collective in San Diego. In this episode, Adam, Joe, and Lonnie talk about important issues of action research, knowledge democratization, and the variety of action research. Now, on to your hosts. My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville, and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the highlands of Peru. And I'm Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based educational organization also in the highlands of Peru. So today we want to talk to you about three of the articles that you sent us, as well as starting with a lightning round. Because you have such a depth of experience and a depth of knowledge, we really want to get kind of pick your brain a little bit about some of the fundamental issues in action research. It's time for a lightning round. Adam and Joe have prepared some key questions for our guest. The challenge is to answer them in the shortest amount of time. You ready? Yeah. Question one, in your own words, what is action research? Action research is a way of approaching two things. One is knowledge creation and two is social change. A similar follow-up question, in your own words, who is action research? In its genuine form, action research can be done by anybody. I've seen it done with middle school students all the way through senior citizens. Okay, next one. What is your general stance on research questions? Action research obviously combines action and research, and it usually, the research is the beginning, the entry point. So in my view, the research question is crucial. I, I taught research methods to graduate students for 23 years, and it's one of the hardest things to teach is how to construct a good question that's going to guide a project. Last question, and we're going to move on. What has been perhaps the most influential seminal article that you've read or been part of that has influenced your own research or philosophical worldview? There's so many. 
I think if we're talking about action research, then there's an article in the journal, Educational Action Research, which is, it's the history and the background of Kurt Lewin, who was an academic. And that article was kind of inspired me in some ways to go a little deeper. Well, that's what I got for lightning round. I would say for me, the seminal article for me that was most influential since we're having that conversation was probably Ernest Boyer from the scholarship of engagement that really opened uh-huh. my eyes to the, the possibilities, the power of academia and perhaps how it's being underutilized. And so I, I often refer back to that. How about you, Joe? I think I share Lonnie's challenge with the yeah. one seminal, like I, I don't know how to choose one. That's really difficult. I thought it was interesting that Lonnie said he came into action research kind of accidentally. And I think that I came into action research similarly in the sense that I was working in Peru trying to do collaborative community-based education work. And I read Pedagogy of the Oppressed and I read We Make the Road by Walking. And those two books really helped me see the possibilities of the work that I was doing in new and different ways. The book that actually changed my life uh, in many ways, A.S. Neal, Summerhill. That book changed my life. How so? Well, it's the story of a small progressive school in England that was based on a kind of a radical conceptualization of freedom and liberation among young people. It guided me into alternative education as a 19-year-old, and I've stayed on that path uh, since then, although how I've been involved in alternative education keeps evolving and shifting, but I've never gotten off of that path. Yeah, that's a wonderful book. If you haven't read it yet, I would highly recommend it. Okay. Yeah, I know for me, I haven't read it, but I've certainly heard it referenced. And I think in connection with the Highlander Center, is there a connection in those stories? Well, a little bit of a connection in that Miles Horton had gone to Europe and studied the folk schools movement, and that changed his life. And then he came back to the U.S. determined to be involved with, you know, versions of adult education. And Highlander Center grew out of that. Yeah, Yeah, there's a a deep and complex history there. It's a wonderful history. And connecting, you know, the Global North and the Global South, at least in the Americas, I think, although so many of us have been influenced by Paulo Freire, the person that we often miss was Falls Border. I came to Falls Border only within the last four years to now start to discover the real roots of participatory action research and the courageous work that Falls Borda did has been just tremendously exciting. And uh, I don't know if you've come across the newest book from Joanne Rappaport, Cowards Don't Make History, Orlando Falls Borda and the Origins of Participatory Action Research. This book is just beautiful. That's great. Thank you for that. Segwaying into one of the topics that I was really keen to talk to you about is discussing the varieties of action research. The history of action research is really important because it seems to have evolved into different strands, into different ways of engaging in similar questions, but different enough to warrant their own epistemological stance. 
and their own framework, perhaps. And so I'd really like to hear how you see the differences in, in like participatory action research versus action research versus critical action research and, and things like that. Well, you know, we're just at such a crucial moment in terms of, you know, where are we going to go next? So I'll start with this division between the academically based action research work, which is valuable, it's, it's important, but there is a tension between that and the community-based work. And so I struggle with that still. In fact, partly what's of interest to me now, especially being here in New Mexico, is that the two big figures in the U.S. were, of course, Kurt Lewin, who was academic through and through, but who recognized the limitations of the ivory tower and wanted to take this kind of toolbox of wonderful skills possessed by sociologists and economists and political scientists, etc., and take them out into the community and apply them to real-world problems. The other person who's less discussed is John Collier. Now, what's interesting about that to me is that John Collier was not an academic. He was a social reformer, and his tenure as the director of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which remains controversial to this day. In fact, I met someone shortly after I moved here, and I mentioned how I was interested in finding out more about John Collier now that I was in New Mexico, and she cautioned me. She said, if your orientation is in any way that he was a liberator through his use of action research, you're going to get nowhere among the indigenous peoples, in particular the Navajo here in New Mexico, because she said he's seen as an oppressor, whether he used action research or not. So I'm determined to uh, dig into that a bit and find out more about that dynamic, because some people have, have said that, just like some people say here, well, the first black president in the U.S. was Bill Clinton. Some people, some, some people say, well, John Collier was the first Indian who directed the Bureau of uh, Indian Affairs because he tried his best, I think, to embrace the epistemological framework of the indigenous peoples here. He didn't fully succeed at all, but his effort to do the work of policy making and implementing changes and the various tribal communities embraced the use of action research. And there's some evidence that he and Kurt Lewin knew each other and corresponded. And it's sort of an open question how much they liked each other or respected each other. I don't know yet. But so I think that's where I start is this distinction between action research being used for a variety of, of academic-related focal points. And I have to always uh, be respectful and tread lightly in this because, I mean, I supervised over 120 action research projects by master's degree students. Over the years, I came to appreciate and to 
try to develop approaches to struggle with the notion that they were doing these projects because they were in a class with a professor who required them. I think near the end of my time at the university, I started to see that for some of the students I worked with, they were only taking up these projects because they were required. And I also noticed that the transition from being a student to being out in a field, for most of them, the vast majority of them, they never touched action research again. We were doing our action research projects in public schools where the need was incredible. The need for practical, creative solutions to problems of practice. And so I was kind of all in on, let's do this, you know, let's do these projects, let's do this in the context of helping to serve school districts and students and families. And yes, it's an assignment and yes, you're going to get a grade on it. But what really matters is this authentic work you're doing. Epistemologically speaking, I've been trying to make the case that action research and knowledge democratization are joined at the hip. Although when I first started to work in that space, some people said to me, well, you know, not all action researchers support knowledge democracy. Many of them are concerned they want to get published, and to get published, they have to jump through these hoops associated with traditional scholarly work. And then on the other side of that coin, some people would say, well, not everybody involved in knowledge democratization is enamored with action research. I've come to appreciate that more. Of course, we have the, the great critic, De Sousa Santos, who's telling everybody that we're committing epistemicide all over the global south every time we show up with a notebook. And although I respect his work greatly, in fact, we invited him to give one of the keynote addresses when we had our conference in, in Colombia in 2017. But I think there sense in which the epistemological divide, that notion of an oppressive northern epistemology, which has taken up all the space and all the air, and an oppressed global south epistemology, which is much more rooted in indigenous peoples and in traditional knowledge systems, I'm interested, as I think Falls Border was, in what he called the convergences, spaces that we have to create where we can kind of respectfully engage in dialogues that seek to strengthen understandings across those divides. Bud Hall and Rajesh Tandon have been at this work for 40 plus years. Both he and Rajesh are in that UNESCO co-chair position, so they travel a lot around the world. And They've been making the point for the last seven, six, seven years now that we have to remember that much democracy involves multiple forms of knowledge and knowledge production and dissemination, songs, painting, photography. So that has become, I think, another challenge for the action research community. If our work is only 
in kind of written scholarly form, then are we limiting ourselves in terms of, of strengthening a diverse epistemological orientation? Which, by the way, last point, I don't know if you saw that the reading of the poem at Biden's inauguration by that 22-year-old young woman, just as concrete an expression as you could get of how the democratization of knowledge can take so many different forms. We absolutely share your sentiment. Something that you said, Lonnie, really resonated with me about this idea of these diverse epistemologies and the work that some academics do. And as somebody who supervises budding practitioners and budding scholars, it's something that I have to struggle with to help them work through, which is the idea of having a Western epistemology inherently causing epistemicide, like you said, like the, the death of other epistemologies. I don't think that that has been shown to be the case. I think that the convergence idea is much more grounded in the realities of the people I work with. The issue is, in my mind at least, is the power that each epistemology has. So it's not that one shouldn't exist and the other one should, the oppressive one shouldn't exist and the oppressed one should, but it's the shifting of the power dynamics and the relationship of the epistemologies where they're at equal footing. So both are considered deeply and with equal respect. And that's something that a lot of my students at the master's level have struggled with in terms of feeling this kind of paralysis of wanting to do good work and not understanding how, because they feel like they embody an identity that is just inherently bad. Very well said. I think if you're having those conversations, then to me, that's a huge plus. I had a student in my last three years, the university who wanted to do a youth participatory action research project in the school where she was doing her field work. And she kept asking me, what project should I do? And I kept saying to her, tell me about the conversations you're having with the students in the school. What kinds of issues are they concerned about? And at first she just looked at me like, she thought there was something wrong with that perspective. And I kept telling her, don't bring a question to me to say, this is what I want my project to be, if you haven't found a way to engage with the students in that school. If you come up with something and you try to force it upon them, it's not going to be genuine. And what she'd been able to do, I think, was to get into that space where she understood that it was their project and that she was working with them as a support, as a consultant, as a, a guide, but that the project was their project. I think if you're able to bridge that gap through working on the trust dimension and the communication dimension, that's not all uh, driven by your frame of reference, but incorporates the frame of reference of the community you're working with, then that to me is beautiful. To continue on that thread, that's already really highlighted what I was talking about. It's that power dynamic is the students are making the choices or the community members are making the choices. And the consultation is happening in what I think is a truer sense of democracy, which is everybody has a voice and there's a collective understanding when everybody can share in an equitable way. Then the people to whom the decisions are impacting have the ultimate say or ultimate voice in terms of how this happens and what happens. It's a really challenging space, I think, right now. Like you said, we're at a critical juncture. That 
kind of vision of communication and trust and democracy, a vision of democracy that is not counting one vote, one person, but it's engaging deeply with community members about issues that are important to them. You know, I hate to say it, but technology has really allowed us to do that in ways that are both empowering or amplifying certain voices, but also silencing other ones and highly problematic, which is what you highlight in uh, one of your articles that you shared with us about democracy, action research, the internet, and the epistemic crisis that you wrote in the journal Future Studies. It really points to this tension where you have these two things happening. So you have knowledge democratization and the knowledge of indigenous communities, the knowledge of otherwise marginalized communities versus kind of populist misinformation and the proliferation of just lies that have happened through the same media that allows for other knowledges to also be present. And, and then the confusion that inherently happens because of that. Yeah. And I, I do think that is really at the cutting edge of what we have to address within the global action research community. We could make such an important contribution. It's not enough to just talk about strengthening unions or to just talk about empowering teachers. There's got to be something that gets at how do we engage critically in discussion of the professional development of educators so that they begin to understand that they have to be creators of knowledge in their field, or they're sacrificing their field to external experts. What's happening with the pandemic is reinforcing the notion that, you know, thank goodness for the experts. So on the one hand, there is truth in that. We need the good science, just as you were saying. You know, it's the same media that allows us to democratize the dissemination of knowledge in diverse epistemological contexts. That same media is being used to generate falsehoods and crazy conspiracy theories and, you know, hateful rhetoric, et cetera, et cetera. So how do we learn to work in that new space that's been created that serves communities and serves people, particularly those who've previously been marginalized and oppressed? Yeah, it really hits home how critical this is right now, because as you said, the use of expertise is important when it's done in the right way and done in the right context. But if it's done in the wrong context and done in the wrong way, it's really, really damaging, especially if it's in particular contexts where, for example, when you're talking about practitioners of education or teachers who have a lot of grounded knowledge that doesn't get the same kind of respect or the same kind of voice that expertise does in such a complicated political space, which is education. One of the things that's interesting about medicine is that the medical establishment, like doctors, often feel like they have a pretty solid voice when it comes to generating their own knowledge because they have this professionalization. So when Fauci, for one example, is placed in this space of respect, it's through a college of peers who all say, okay, this person has done really great work. We all think that this work is useful. And we can say that this person is, is a, the right person for this job. And, and we're all good with that. It's a very different case in education. And the fact that we use the same kind of medical model in education is very challenging. There's things that I think both medicine and education can learn both ways. The importance of context, the importance of the population in education is utmost importance because as I've experienced as a teacher, if you're in one cultural space, 
your pedagogy will probably not look the same if you want to be effective as in another cultural space. And we see this all the time in the education field where education students from middle-class backgrounds have pedagogy that really works with children from the same kind of middle-class backgrounds that they grew up in. Shifting over to a new cultural context, it takes a lot of adaptation, reflexivity, and thoughtfulness to understand one's positionality, how they engage their assumptions, yeah. to then be able to culturally connect with students. That kind of knowledge is very hard to generate from the expert level because of the yeah. nuance and the complexity and the contextualized and bounded nature of every classroom. Every classroom is different. Every student you have is different. And I think that knowledge is lost a lot because we don't have the same level of professionalization of the teacher profession. The dilemma you were describing so well has captured for me. Do you remember when there was a march for science? I can't remember the exact name of it, but this march in San Diego, of course, had a huge number of students and faculty from UCSD. And there were two signs. This one woman, she appeared to be a faculty member, had this sign. It said, anti-science is dot, 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 so 12th century. And I loved her sign. But then there was another sign carried by somebody, a big sign that said, got a question? Ask a scientist. We have the answers. And I thought, ouch, this is not what I support, you know, because what that person I don't think understood is that precisely what fuels some of the populist anger at experts and scientists is the arrogance of thinking that they have all the answers. I think part of that is because, and I suppose in a sense is why I feel so fortunate to have spent all that time in the field of counseling. It's the importance of empathy and listening. If we have something to contribute because of our knowledge and expertise, that is, as you said, that's a good thing. But if we don't have the capacity to connect with people in the local contexts, I, I think it's very questionable whether they're going to see what we have to offer as being worthwhile. Yeah. Talking about this is making me think about a situation that exists out here in Peru. It's a very traditional agrarian culture, you know, various small communities kind of spread out throughout the mountains. The knowledge that these communities host is as impressive as anything that I've ever seen. And by that, I mean the way that they are self-sufficient and the way that they connect with their land. I mean, deep-rooted Incan traditions that there's just so much value behind you know what i've been seeing over the years with my own two eyes is that these communities are starting to disappear and why is that it's because of rural urban migration you know it's because in the, the education system here you know there's a message being shared that there is no value in being a farmer what life is about is earning money and going to Cusco. They're not teaching Quechua. They're learning in Spanish and English, if anything. The irony, actually, current state is that with the pandemic and all of the strict quarantine policies that have been put in place, you're seeing youth who have left their communities starting to return, right? They're returning to their homelands. They're returning to their traditional practice. And it's a real beautiful thing. My question 
I guess for you, Lonnie, is how do you go about capturing that, right? And instilling the fact that these values are so important, but I feel like there's a disconnect between those in the field and practitioners and even knowing that there is a platform for their knowledge to be disseminated, that there is an audience that gives a shit, you know? So like from a very practical stance, like how do you acknowledge that this is happening right in front of your two eyes, knowing that there's a way to approach it, but what are those steps? A couple of things come to mind right off the top. One is, so one of my favorite authors in education, Gerald Pine, his last book is about teacher action research. And the subtitle of the book is Building Knowledge Democracies in Schools. He issued a call in the 1980s where he challenged the school counseling community to turn away from traditional social science research and embrace participatory approaches in schools. Practically speaking, we need to be building infrastructure that does disseminate and mobilizes the knowledge that is produced by practitioners. That's the whole story of Social Publishers Foundation. My wife and I basically created this foundation as a a labor of love and a way to sort of keep giving back because we were both professors in education and we both saw the limits of formal academic publishing. We wanted to find a way to try to lift up practitioners if we could to say, here's a place that you can publish your work. No fee. You own the copyright but we've created a platform so that we can share your work. And then we surrounded it with, you know, kind of the more modern use of social media so that every time we publish an article, we also put the word out and we keep experimenting with this in various ways. I keep trying to explain to people the opportunities that are there for starting to build a base for what we call practice-based research evidence. Here, evidence-based practice has become a, a real oppressive term. In Europe, Kurt Biesta discusses very concretely how this research that has totally embraced the traditional conceptualization of evidence-based practice is oppressive to practitioners. It further deprives them of respect for the knowledge that they create on a daily basis. Clive Beck there in OISI, he did a chapter in our Palgrave International Handbook of Action Research on what he calls informal classroom action research. And he says teachers are doing informal action research every day, every day. He says the problem is that, first of all, the idea of writing it up intimidates them. And secondly, they're so pressed for time because of all the demands on them to do so much nonsense. They don't have time to write something up. You know, we're all so limited in the resources we have. So I keep reaching out. The latest one is a high school. The music teacher in this high school has been encouraging students to produce music videos in which they are singing either 
traditional songs from the Mi'kmaq community or new songs that the young people are writing. One of the students did a cover of the Beatles' Blackbird in Mi'kmaq, and it's just beautiful. I reached out to them to publish the work of the students and put it on Social Publishers Foundation. All we're asking is working with you, help encourage them to write a short 500-word essay in which they discuss how they've not only done what they've done, but how do they see what they're doing as helping to create knowledge for other people. In other words, what I'm trying to argue for is a multifaceted approach to helping people to see the value of democratized knowledge production and how it can be useful. And Adam, you really pointed to a really critical question because of this overarching issue and narrative of if you want to get the same material goods that they have in the city, you have to come to the city to make money. But then that means that people are leaving. And so when they come back and they start to see, oh, wait, life in the community is actually, there's a lot of peace here. There's a lot of community here. There are a lot of things that I lost when I went to the city, seeing these challenges right in front of our face and trying to think about this issue of how do we build infrastructure so that knowledge and wisdom is seen as invaluable as it is. It is a value that is beyond anything that some kind of material correspondence can talk about. One of the projects that I've been working on is a photo voice participatory action research project with first generation students who leave their home communities to go to Cusco, the big city, for post-secondary education. And they talk really eloquently about the loss of the community, the loss of the peace, but also the promise and the opportunity that they get to send money back home because there are challenges with food security and things like that. So there's a really deep tension. Again, it kind of comes back to this point of when we're talking about the democratization of knowledge, there's a step there in which one has to acknowledge that they are an embracer of that knowledge and that there is actually an audience that cares. And I think that is almost like where you would have to start, right? Going back to what we were talking about earlier with this sort of system of academia, there's incentive for faculty to take the time and write these articles and publish as much as they can. It's important for their tenure. It's important for their status. It's important for their own careers. So when we talk about knowledge holders, I mean, practitioners, perhaps in education, but even people who aren't practitioners and they're just holders of knowledge, where's the incentive for them to take the time and share what's on their mind? My point is, I think more than anything, that should be part of the dialogue that there's a value to one's own knowledge and education and what we can share. And that is a message that perhaps needs to be communicated. I want to just hop in right there, Adam, because I think you pointed to something really important. That academics is academics. We don't do enough of, I think, which is listen. Because what you pointed to is the real deep need to listen and appreciate and not just speak. And if there are knowledge holders who are able to share with people who are listening and learning, that is the action of valorizing and valuing that. It's actually learning and just sincerely engaging in this process of listening. I don't know if either Joe, you or Adam had a chance to read, you know, we did that two-part special issue on knowledge democracy in 
education, language, and research. And there's an article in there from South America. The authors are Miguel Del Pino and Donatia Ferrara. The title of the article is Construction of Educational Knowledge with the, and I'm not sure about this pronunciation, Mapuche community mm -hmm. through, sure. through dialogical Kishu Kimkale Tache research. They were asked to come in and help to design a kind of indigenous approach to reforming education in that community. And what they decided to do is to come in with the understanding that the only way that they could do that would be if the work of even conceptualizing the reforms was grounded in the dialogical infrastructure of the community itself. And I'll just say for me personally, it's really hitting home because there's a big question here, right? It's for me, if we are not doing this, what we're talking about with democratization of knowledge, then what is the point? It's important and it's our duty as seasoned scholars, as budding scholars, as students to just continue having this dialogue. People just don't understand or know that this is even a topic of discussion. And, and for most people, you would think it would be relatively intuitive, right? Like, yeah, we're all holders of knowledge. And for me, I think the big takeaway is it starts with having that dialogue and exposing those around us to the fact that this is important. That's why things like what we're doing here, but also every time you're meeting with a, a circle of graduate students who are doing action research or participatory action research or YPAR, that we always create a bit of a space for these kinds of conversations yeah. to raise big questions that lengthen the epistemological contexts. Are you trying to produce knowledge because you've got an assignment to complete? Or do you see this work you're doing as part of your further development as a person who wants to make a difference in a specific community or in a specific region or in a, a field of practice? There's no easy answers to those. There's a lot of questioning that goes on. Mm -hmm. And that questioning is not only healthy, but it's at the core, I think, of what is meaningful about taking a different stance in relation to knowledge production and dissemination. I want to make a little bit of a plug for a project. I have a project in Peru right now called Yachayaymi, which is a catch word for roughly translated meaning learning through reciprocity. And we're trying to build a culturally grounded curriculum through student-run, student-led, and teacher-led inquiry projects to gather and create competency-based lesson plans because of the need for the national ministry to recognize them, but competency-based lesson plans with the content of the knowledge holders in the community. And so their whole curriculum will be grown from the knowledge that's already within the community, and it'll apply to the competencies that are highlighted in the national. And so when we're talking about convergence, I didn't have a chance to talk about that, but this is something I'm excited about, obviously, because it's something that I've been involved in for a number of years with colleagues who do really amazing work in Peru. But this is something that I think hits home in terms of what you've been talking about and the role of valorizing knowledge and knowledge democratization 
Instead of having these experts in Lima tell students what they need to know in the Sacred Valley of Peru, it's the students in the Sacred Valley of the Peru with the teachers and the knowledge holders saying, this is what the next generation needs to learn. And then they can build off of that and continue to push it further. Wow. It sounds like a beautiful project. The area that I'm just getting kind of geared up for is to work on civic literacy. It goes way back to my experience with the war in Vietnam as a student protester where I found myself asking, how could so many people believe that everything was fine with this war? And I mean, it led to like a 20-year fallout with my father, may he rest in peace, who had served in the U.S. Navy in World War II and the Korean War and was in many ways uh, a hero as a young man. But he said to me once when I was about 18, you know, if your country tells you this war is okay, then you have to accept it. And I said to him, why? And so we had quite a struggle. But fast forward 20 years, we're doing a family roots trip around New England. We're in a bar and Bar Harbor, Maine, and he leans over to me and says, you know, you were right about Vietnam. I mean, I'll never forget that moment because the changes he must have gone through to come to the place that he'd come to. We can't start on any of these journeys around trying to increase awareness or build consciousness. Thank you for all the work that you do and for creating this platform for for all of us to share on. I mean, it's a quite a contribution. Thank you guys for the opportunity to just have this really fun conversation. Thanks again so much for coming on. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the Action Research Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast.